Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryant, and Jerry's out there wandering around in the ether, and that makes this Stuff You Should Know. She's been wandering around the ether for weeks. At least. I dare say months by now, Chuck. Yeah. She's, uh... I actually just chatted with Jerry from 10 feet away. Oh, that's nice, man. That must have felt really special. It did. Her hair's long. I'll bet. I'm, man, my hair's really long, too. Yeah, I, I feel like I saw Jerry a couple months ago and her hair was long, so she must have, like, a full-on, like, do now. Uh, Yeah, you know, she looks like a proper lady. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm not touching that one. All right. <laughs> So, Chuck, this one was one of yours. It was a, a nursing homes is the idea, right? Yeah. So I have a question for you. What what made you decide that you wanted to do one on nursing homes? You know, I mean, I'm almost 50. My parents are in their mid-70s. Emily's grandmother is <laughs> edging toward 100. Wow. <laughs> so, you know, this is the kind of stuff that just you got to start thinking about at some point. And Emily and I are old parents. And have an only child that we don't want her to have to, like, have to take care of us or anything. So, like, we're just starting to have all these thoughts. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm not so sure America does it right here. Yeah. Um, and after studying this stuff, it's – we do it okay. But it's also like, hey, work your whole life and then go broke at the end. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a real bo- a bummer about the whole thing. Is it's you're just kind of like expected to spend whatever money you have on care at the end of your life, and it just seems a little wrong to me too. Yeah, and we uh, need to shout out first of all uh, our buddy Dave Ruse mm-hmm. helped us put this together, and he actually did a, a real deal interview with Dr. Muriel Gillick, uh, who is an author of Old and Sick in America: colon, mm-hmm. The Journey Through the Healthcare System. And was quite a resource, and the the history of this stuff in this country, I think, was pretty fascinating. Yeah, it is. It's super fascinating. Um, And the whole thing kind of started out, um, you know, and we're talking about nursing homes in particular, but there's just no way we can't talk about other kinds of homes in particular because nursing homes grew out of this kind of system that developed that seemed to really kind of take shape and take hold around the the second industrial revolution, the one that happened here in the States. And, And because of that, because people were like, you know, I don't feel like swinging the scythe any longer. I'm going to go into town and see what they have in the way of jobs. Yeah. So long, mom and dad. All of a sudden, mom and dad were like gulp because they were on their own, not just, you know, one set of parents in particular, but as like a gener- intergenerational trend where kids were moving away from the farm and all of a sudden there weren't multi-generational homes like there were before. Because when you have a multi-generational home, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen to you when you get old or where you're going to live. You're going to live in the same house you raised your, your bratty little kid in uh-huh. to take care of you until you die. And that's just the way it was for years and years and years in America. Yeah, there's a stat here. Uh, in 1900, 57% of adults over 65 lived in a multi-generational household. And by 1980, 80 years later, that went down to 17%. Wow. And a big reasons for that, like you were talking about, you know, moving away from the farm. But just nowadays, people just move away. I mean, 63% of American adults uh, have moved to a completely new community at least once. Right. And as uh, 
Dr. Gillick points out, uh, she says not only are people not living with their adult children, uh, they're not even living near them many times now. Yeah, because they finally wised up and were like, gosh, I can get away from my kids once and for all now that they're adult. <laughs> well, I think it's more like the kids are like, hey, gee, I want to go live in wherever the heck I want to. And, yeah. And we'll just think of a plan for uh, uh, my parents, a home. Yeah. My generation doesn't have any hang-ups about guilt or morality, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, is it's not just the kids moving away. Like, my grandmother moved far away. She moved to Florida. She moved to Arizona. Yeah, that happened like, too. Like, she moved. Sure. Like, she was like, so long, everybody. I, I, I got this. Um, but she was very fortunate that she had it. The, one of the things that um, nursing homes exist for is to take care of people who don't got it, who either don't have family, who don't have the money to hire people to take care of them, who don't have the money to go live in, in you know, say, like, assisted living or something. Um, that's what nursing homes have kind of evolved to take care of. And in that sense, they're actually directly related to what came, what were originally called almshouses or county houses or poor houses, which if you were old and you didn't have anyone to take care of you in like the late 18th, early 19th century in America, you could go to like a farm that the county maintained and there would be a bed there for you and um, you would be housed with a bunch of different people with a bunch of different conditions. And the one thing that you all had in common was that society didn't quite know what to do with you. Yeah. So, I mean, it could range from people who had no living family to and just, you know, needed care uh, that had nothing else wrong with them except just being old and needing care and having no one around right. uh, to people that were mentally ill, maybe people who – uh, were suffering from dementia or people who were alcoholics or drug addicts. Mm -hmm. And like you said, they you could get a bed, but there were no doctors. There were no nurses. Right. You couldn't get medical care. Uh, and that was sort of the the beginnings of, of the shame almost, <laughs> if you want to look at it that way. Yeah, kind of. But it does say something that society did say, we have a responsibility to people. We can't just be True. like, well, there's a cornfield for you to go lay in until you die of exposure. Good luck. You know, like there was a bed that was provided as meager and horrific as that whole thing was. It was at least an experiment or an attempt to do something. Yeah. And, you know, the next big change happened um, sort of midway through the 19th century when uh, sort of around the time of the Civil War, we started getting our first big hospitals, like medical hospitals, public medical hospitals in the big cities around the country. And they, uh, you know, they were sort of the, the beginnings of modern um, large-scale public health care. And here's the thing, though, is they were – back then they focused on acute care. So if you, again, were a senior – and you uh, – they called them old chronics, like you had maybe a chronic condition and mm -hmm. no one to take care of you. Then you uh, – basically, you were too too dependent to go to one of these places because it was a hospital. And they're like, you can't stay here. Right, because even though, you know, you're called an old chronic, you might not have anything wrong with you aside from being really old and maybe you can't make it to the bathroom very easily, something like that. Right. But not necessarily anything that a hospital could treat you for. It was just they had a bed, but hospitals very quickly were like, we can't, like, this isn't working. You're going to stay here indefinitely, and there's really nothing wrong with you. we got to find a place for you. And so about that time, some uh, charities, especially either ethnic or religious-based charities like like the um, Baptists or the um, German uh, Aid Society, 
uh, was a was a big one in Boston, I think, um, the, the German Ladies Aid Society of Boston. I'm sorry. Um, they kind of said, you know what, we we have members who are. Uh, they're members of our church or, you know, they're German, they're part of our community, and they don't have anybody. So we, we need to make sure that they're taken care of. And they actually started founding what were called old age homes, which is basically they would get like a, a large home and um, kind of outfit it with different, each room was like a different room for a different uh, tenant. And they would take care of like old widows, basically, who didn't have the money or the children to take care of them. Yeah, but specifically what they deemed as worthy poor. Uh, and here's what differentiated them from the almshouses was uh, if you were worthy poor, and, you know, that's in air quotes, mm-hmm. that meant that you were the wife of of a man who, who worked hard all his life but never made a lot of money, uh, maybe worked at a shipyard or just had sort of a – a very low-paying, blue-collar, but respectable job, but certainly not the kind of dough to pay for, like, private nursing homes or anything like that. Right. But not alcoholic or drug addict or, (laughs) you know, there was um, no—they didn't, like, force a shame attachment to it. So these widows who were, you know, in their 60s or 70s, depending on, you know, how their husband lived their lives. They're like, I've been morphine-free since 73, (laughs) so let me in. Uh, They didn't have these big pensions or anything because of the jobs their husbands had. So they were taken into one of these homes, like a Baptist home or something, and they were given a bed, and they were given, again, not medical care, but they were at least given meals and a bed. Right. Um, A lot of times they were expected to kind of pay for their their room and board. Um, It was kind of like a needs-based sliding scale, I got the impression. Some of them um, just straight up said, hey, uh, give us $500 uh, at the time, or I think around 1900 or the late 19th century. I don't remember exactly when it was. Um, the Winchester Home for Aged Women in Massachusetts. The Winchester had, Mystery House? <laughs> I looked it up. I was like, is that the same one? Oh, but man. it was it was bequeathed by a Lucy Winchester, who I couldn't find anything about, but it's not the same person. You lose a lot of people in that house. Yeah, you would, Um, although you gain a lot more ghosts. That's true. But um, they said, you pay us $500. So this is in 1904. You pay us $500, and you can stay here for the the rest of your life. And $500 back then was worth about 15000 today. And they're like, how old Um, are you again? (laughs) Exactly. I was thinking about that. It's a bit of a gamble on both sides, but it's a bit like insurance. It's like some sort of long-term care um, insurance where you're like, okay, let's stretch my $500 as far as I can go. Or, you know, you could die two days after. They still kept your $500, but then hopefully it was used to make life better for the other people who had used up their $500 long ago. Right. You know? So there was this kind of idea that if you could pay for it, you should pay for it. And then as time went on, it was like, oh, you just, you know, you sold your house, we need that money if you're going to stay here. And and people would take in more and more money from that person's estate um, as they were alive to take care of them. And this was starting in like the, the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century. So this is a very long tradition of extracting everything from yeah. old people as they're dying to, <laughs> to pay for their care. Yeah, like, and I'm like with a, you. I, the, I'm bothered by that. Yeah, I mean, the question became— uh, not how how much is it for your care facility, and it's more like how much you got. How much you got? Here, grab them by the ankles and turn them upside down. Or if they, you know, if they weren't charging, there was the expectation that they didn't need so much care that they couldn't also contribute. Like, here, we got a room for you, we'll feed you, but you got to make your bed, and you got to clean your room, and maybe help 
keep the property up. Right. Uh, so I got the idea that these were people who, like I said, you know, a, a, a senior widow uh, who just didn't have anywhere else to go and otherwise was doing okay. Yeah, but forced to make knockoff Gucci wallets during craft, <laughs> arts and crafts time. Should we take a break? Sure. All right. I got a Gucci wallet to work on myself. Okay, so we've got almshouses are still around. They have they stayed around until like the 1940s, from what I could see. These county houses, poor houses, um, and then alongside of those, you've got old age homes. But then um, the government was kind of like, we can do we can do better than this. New York itself, I think, became the first state in the United States to say. Um, it's 1890. It's modern era. We need to do more to take care of, like, our our elderly, and in particular, our mentally infirm. Um, they And they that state made a commitment to take care for the state, to take responsibility for its um, mentally ill. And that included uh, people with dementia of all sorts, um, which they would have called senility back then. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of like the first entree of the state into caring for elderly people. And that actually kind of opened a bit of a floodgate. I think um, other states started to kind of follow suit. But it was like a it was a step in a really dark direction because by World War One, if you were elderly, especially if you had some sort of um, decline, some sort of cognitive decline from age, there was a really good chance that you were in a mental asylum um, with everybody else. And in, in a lot of cases, I think even if you were just elderly, you would find yourself in a mental asylum. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you've got a situation where the states start to say, hey, we need to take care of our mentally ill. But seniors just started getting kind of lumped in if they didn't have anywhere else to go. So yeah. you might have – you know, someone's someone's grandmother who just didn't have family and who was really doing okay upstairs and and was in pretty good health <laughs> might find themselves in, uh, like you said, a mental hospital with people with severe mental illness. Right. Uh, and I think there's uh, a couple of stats here that Dave dug up. By 1930, there were more elderly Americans in mental hospitals than in those almshouses and the private old age homes combined. And uh, he mentioned one in particular, Chicago State Hospital, which mm-hmm. was a mental hospital. In the 1930s, 70% of the patients there were, quote, aged or infirm that had no other underlying psychosis or mental health condition. Right. So that's a really dangerous place for old people to be because if you act up, they can put you on medications. They can give you um, the the hydrotherapy treatment. They can do all sorts of stuff to you because you're in a mental hospital. And I think it's kind of like one of those things where um, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, if you're a 1930s old-timey psychiatrist, everything looks like a uh, um, a mental a, condition. A, a mental condition, yeah. right, you know. Um, and you're going to treat all of the people the same way. And so it, luckily Francis Perkins arrived on the scene around this time. So World War One is when 
old people really started to get shuffled off to mental hospitals. By 1935, the government swooped in and was like, whoa, whoa, this is way wrong. Like, we need, just because these people are old doesn't mean that they're, um, they're mentally ill. So let's extract them from that environment and figure out if we can do something else. And thanks to Social Security, that, that really began to change fairly quickly. Yeah, so this is 1935. Uh, again, you mentioned the great Francis Perkins. If you didn't listen to that episode, go listen to it. It's fantastic. Yeah, you're missing out. Uh, the Social Security Act, um, it basically, like when we think of Social Security now, we think of the program where you pay in, your whole life uh, from your paycheck. And then when you retire, you get a monthly income. And if you work longer, uh, then your checks are going to be bigger. Um, I started working when I was 13. So I imagine I'm going to be rolling in dough. You're always boasting about that. <laughs> I'm time. sick of hearing about that. <laughs> about my 13-year-old busboy job? Yes. <laughs> it's a title max now, by the way. Is it really? Yeah, drive title by. Title <laughs> max got your money, your money, your real money. I ju- oh, man. You, that's some good free advertising. Yeah, uh, I drove by. I drive by there on the way to uh, my mom's and uh, Emily's parents' house sometimes, and I always point it out to uh, my daughter and say, "Hey, that's the barbecue restaurant I worked at. It's now a Title Max." <laughs> Is that the one where the guy put his foot in the Brunswick stew? Yeah, that, that, God, hey man, so wrong, it's man. so wrong. I wonder where Whoa. that guy is now, Randy. He's in. He's in. I don't know. I'm uh, not even uh, going to guess. I have a feeling Randy's in prison. Do you think so? I mean, uh, he, he, I saw him do a lot worse than put his foot in the Brunswick stew. You know what I mean? Oh, jeez. I don't, but my mind is racing He was right headed now. for a life behind bars. I see. And I'm not laughing at that. It's, it's very sad. But Randy, you know, he made his own decisions. <laughs> that reminds me. Remember Randy the hippie from MTV in like the late 80s, early 90s? No. He ran for president. He was like just this total weirdo burnout who Was he a character? Like yeah. Oh, okay. Who looked today like he could have been in LMFAO. Okay. Like, really, he dressed like that, but this is, like, decades before it. But anyway, I remember, like, he, he like, ran for president, and I think he lost, and he's like, I've made my bed, now I must lie in it. <laughs> I'll never forget that ad for some Randy. reason. I just thought it was hilarious. But, yeah, that was Randy. Well, I mean, maybe it was the Randy. Brunswick's uh, it was the Randy. That's okay. what I'm saying. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, that that was old age insurance is what they called it originally. But then there was also uh, old age assistance, OAA, which was mm-hmm. you're going to get uh, payments uh, when you're older, even if you didn't work, which was a big deal because so many women were not allowed to work and have jobs. So, like, what were they going to do? They're going to say, hey, you didn't pay anything in. Sorry, you just raised your kids and grandkids. That's a great that's a great point. I. I think we still do that today, though, unfortunately, but at least women can actually work in the workforce if they want to. But, yeah, if they if they stay home and raise kids, then they're still treated the same way, which is pretty shameful. But I get your point, and the point is, is that we needed to be able to um, take care of people who hadn't necessarily worked in the workforce and paid into Social Security. And then also, we had to offset that first, basically, generation that— yeah. We're like, okay, we're the first ones. Yeah, like, Nobody's been paying <laughs> exactly. in, but why do we, why are we the ones who have to pay in, but we get nothing yeah, from it? That's a good point. So that old age assistance, the OAA, really helped with that. Um, and I guess it's kind of gone the way of disco because the only thing I know about is the old age insurance that's still around. And I know they don't call it that any longer, but that old age assistance where it's like, I guess that would be Medicaid, right? Yeah, I think so. 
Okay. So, so we'll, and we'll talk a lot more about Medicaid and Medicare. Just put a button in that, all of you bureaucrat wonks. You're going to love it. Yeah, but, uh, you know, FDR, this is when things really changed. And the reason we're talking about Social Security and stuff like this is because it really, it sort of laid out the roadmap for what was going to happen and how we cared for our grandparents and uh, what kind of places they were going to be. So, Because he went in there with a new deal, and he was like, these almshouses are terrible. Right. He's like, we need to get rid of these. And he said, in these state mental hospitals, they're overburdened, and that's not right either. Mm-hmm. So here's what I'll do. Part of the OAA, the old age assistance, uh, a big provision here is that you can't um, you can't get any of that money if you're living in a public institution like an almshouse or like a state mental hospital. No money coming your way. No. So suddenly the people who were stuck in state mental hospitals or almshouses not only were like, oh, well, I could get out of here. Now I have the the funds to get out of here and go somewhere better. And this led to a huge boom in the, the growth of private um, uh, living facilities for the elderly. Yeah, I, th- um, I think that was the big change. I mean, surely people yeah. were like, great, I can get out of here. But I think people saw dollar signs Definitely. said, wait a minute, I can get paid by the government to take in these people and take care of them. Right. Like sometimes directly get paid by the government. Yeah, that was kind of like a, an amendment that they made later on where it was like, um, yeah, that, that incentivized it even more. It's like, we'll we'll pay you directly. There's not even, the, this person doesn't even have to be involved. Just take care of them, in, you know, follow these guidelines, and we'll send you this check every month. And the people and, are like, is there any money left over for me, you know? And they went, no, 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 no just, just don't ask any questions. It's As a matter of fact, now that you bring it up, do you have any money? you got to give it to them first before we give you yeah, any Yeah, there's money. a balance on your account, sir. So um, this is kind of how it went for like the, the first, you know, 15, 20 years after Social Security Act was introduced in 1935, where um, it, it fueled this boom of retirement homes, basically. The retirement home industry found its its birth there. And then about 15 years after, the government was like, you know what? We've been sinking a lot of money into this. Maybe we should look around and see if any of these places are any good. And they found that, no, in a lot of cases, they weren't really good. There was, um, you know, if you if you converted an old Victorian mansion into an old age home with a dozen rooms, you probably didn't add a fire exit onto every room and fire stairs on the second and third floor. Um, There's probably not a sprinkler system because they weren't very uh, prevalent by that time. And so if there was a fire, all of these, uh, the dozen aged and infirm uh, people who lived there were going to die in a fire. Um, That was the one big one that they turned up that came out of these early investigations into into what came to be called nursing homes. Yeah, so this is when Congress steps in again, uh, like you said, about 15 to 20 years later in the 1950s and said, all right, here's the deal. Uh, if you're getting this dough from us, we need to regulate um, what's going on there, and they need to be safe. And a lot of these mom and pops that, like you said, converted an old house, they couldn't make those upgrades. You can't just slap on a fire escape to an old Victorian. I guess you could, but it wouldn't look that great or probably work that well. <laughs> and so a lot of these smaller ones floundered, and all of a sudden, and this is things where things really start to change, there's a big market for just basically, I don't know if I would call it the corporatization yet, but maybe to a certain degree, these bigger facilities for residents that had this money that could go straight to them. And uh, so these sort of larger places that weren't individual houses started popping up. 
Yeah, well, that's like an ongoing and recurring theme and a big criticism among conservatives of big government or government regulation is that it homogenizes things because usually the mom-and-pop operations, even if they are well-meaning and not nefarious, like they don't have the money to add those fire exits on. But say like a corporation that's going to own several of these things, they can build new ones with all the modern fire exits and fire sprinklers. And so those bigger corporations start owning more and more and more. And by building more and more and more, they're not going to make each one like really unique and, and embedded in the community. They're going to plunk down the same one in every place they build one. And so there's this homogenization that occurs as a result of that. And that's exactly what happened with what came to be called nursing homes, which really started to find their advent in the 1950s from these reforms where the government was like, you guys need to be able to do this, this, and this. Um, we're going to assign the um, public health service to, to lay out guidelines. The public health service knows about regulating hospitals. So they really added onto that homogenization, this, this underlying medicalization of caring for older people, which makes sense. You know, you think of older people, elderly people, senior adults, you think, gosh, they, you know, the body's starting to wear down. They have, they have all these conditions or whatever. So it makes sense that you would couple hospitalization or medicalization with that. But that's not always the case. And the problem is, is it became the case. Whether you needed it or not, that was the kind of place you lived, was basically a bland institutional extension of a hospital. Yeah, I mean, it's not like in uh, – I kept thinking of the movie Say Anything what? when uh, I was d- researching this because that was a prominent storyline in that movie. Oh, I never saw it. You never saw Say Anything? I didn't. Do you wonder what happens every time a guy in a trench coat holds up a boombox over his head? To, I mean, I, I know you get the cultural reference? Okay. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I just wondered if all this time you're like, what is the deal with this boombox? <laughs> yeah, there, it's like a reference to Kevin Smith and Clerks, right? Okay, sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now, Ioni Sky's father, uh, the, the late, great John Mahoney, was he ran a mom-and-pop nursing home. Uh, oh, really? Yes, and was – and spoiler coming, if you haven't seen the 30-something-year-old movie. Uh, he was found to be ripping them off, and that was a big sort of – subplot in that movie. All I heard was that was a big subplot in that movie. <laughs> All right, good. Good. But uh, say anything aside, they, um, like you said, became more hospitalized, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And if you went to one of them back then, there was very little to differentiate it from a hospital, from the central nurses station to the cafeteria food. Yeah. Uh, I remember going to visit my my grandmother on my uh, my paternal grandmother who lived to be 101 uh, before my dad and his wife took her in. She was in one of these places and uh, – or actually maybe it was the other way around. She went afterward. But uh, it was it, it was terrible. You know, it, it was awful and very, very sad. And if I – was not a young man with, no, you know, nothing going on in my life. I might have done something about it, but, you know, I didn't know what to do back then. You would have opened all the doors and been like, go free, go free. <laughs> I would have ripped her out of there at least and said, come yeah. on with me. Yeah, I mean, they they were pretty bad, especially by the time I'm guessing you were there in the 80s or 90s maybe. This was in would have been the 90s, yeah. So in the 50s, in the mid-50s even, these things made a little more sense. At the very least, they were newer. By the, the 70s and 80s, they were so bad that we had a— uh, a reform act that kicked in in 1987, which is basically like, <laughs> this place is wrong. And like, maybe we don't know what to do or replace them with, but here are some things that 
that you have to treat these people with, like, dignity. They have to be able to have a say in what they wear or what they um, what they eat or what they do during the day. And it, it really kind of got off the rails within a couple of decades after their advent. The thing is, is, like I was saying, nobody knows what to do about nursing homes. And we'll talk a little more about that later, but just, just kind of put a pin in that. Nursing homes were not not great, and they're still not great. Yeah, should we take a break and then come back and talk about Medicaid and Medicare and how that figures in? Yeah. All right, we'll, we'll be right back with those two tiny little things right after this. Right. So we promised talk of Medicare and Medicaid. And I think uh, Dave kind of put it really on the nose here. He said no two government programs have shaped the nursing home care model over the last 50 years more than than those two programs. Uh, Mm -hmm. Created in 1965, uh, Lyndon Johnson amended the Social Security Act. And uh, if you still get confused, if you're like a a young hip and happening millennial and you don't know what those two words mean and you get them mixed up. Uh, Medicare is health insurance, universal, one might dare say socialized medicine. That's a red herring. <laughs> for Americans over 65, Medicaid is long-term care for uh, Americans uh, lower income status. That's right. That's or, the difference. Um, yeah, and it can, you don't necessarily have to be elderly for um, Medicaid. I believe, yeah, Medicare, you do. Medicaid, you could be uh, lower income and have a lifelong disability, and you'd uh, be eligible for Medicaid, too. Yeah, so Medicare, again, this is if you're over 65, it's going to pay for acute medical care when you're in a hospital. But if you need something long-term, um, kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning, uh-huh. then uh, it won't pay for that. Like you can't just say, all right, I'm going to go to a nursing home now and it's going to just pay for that in full. But Medicaid would. And for a while, everybody's like, okay, well, we'll just take Medicaid. This is um, after uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society in 1965. Um, So they they were like, this is fine. And then somebody realized that Medicare pays way more than Medicaid does. And so all of the uh, bottom line people said, how can we we do this? What are we going to do? So they read the, the act. Um, and they found that uh, there was language in there that says Medicare will pay for a stay up to 100 days in a skilled nursing facility um, after three days or more of treatment in the hospital. And so all of those nursing homes were like, well, we have, we have nurses, we have doctors. Well, let's just rebrand ourselves as skilled nursing facilities. And so there was a huge, massive transition from nursing homes where you would go live potentially the rest of your life and there were not nurses and doctors and all of that. Um, and this was your new home until you died to you guys got to go because we're now a skilled nursing facility, which means the most you could stay is 100 days. But we're going to make way more off of flipping people every 100 days than we would because Medicare is going to pay, then we would letting you stay here as a nursing home because Medicaid's paying for that. And that, like I said, just caused a huge change in the industry. 
Yeah, and Americans uh, in the 80s and 90s um, generally were like, you know what, we need better um, facilities and more comfortable facilities that feel more like uh, feel less like a hospital and more like an apartment, let's say. Yeah. And that was sort of the birth of what's known now as assisted living facilities, where uh, there are different levels of care that you can pay for. Um, and the idea is that if you go to one of those, you have a little bit more independence. Um, you have a little bit more uh, say in like how your day goes. Um, like, and that's just at a, just like a daily schedule level. Um and, you know, it's like a little more social. Like it, it's it's sort of like you would, what you – I mean the best ones are like what you would hope they would be, which is a place for your grandparents to go hang out and hang out with other uh, seniors who and, – and, you know, have a social life and tell stories and be with one another and not just sort of be in a hospital room. Right. So like if you can't just stay in your house or something as you're getting older, this is a real alternative for you. Um, and because there's different levels of care, you can age in place there. Like you can just keep getting older and older and then they'll start, you know, adding greater and greater layers of care. The thing is, is assisted living is expensive yes. and it's outside of the federal purview. Like the, the feds went all in on nursing homes. They regulate nursing homes. They don't regulate assisted care. Um, they, uh, they will pay for nursing homes. They won't pay for assisted care. Um, there's a lot of differences and they're almost, they're, they're very much intertwined nursing homes and assisted living, but, um, they're very, they're very separate as far as the U.S. government is, is concerned. They're two different things, and the government recognizes nursing homes. Um, the thing is, it's like you were saying in the 80s and 90s, people were like, we, we don't want to live in nursing homes anymore. We want to move over here. And all the nursing homes were like, fine, we're skilled nursing uh, facilities now, and we can get some of that sweet, sweet Medicare uh, money. So and now like, if you— Did you see that stat? Uh, yeah, 1963, there were 570,000 skilled nursing beds, mm -hmm. and in 1982, there were 1.2 million. So yeah. they definitely were like, oh, that, that money needs to be coming our way. Exactly. So, and that's exactly what they did. They said, you know, we're we're skilled nursing facilities now, and you know, they probably are owned by the hospitals where you do three days in there and then get moved to the skilled nursing facility. And then maybe if it's a large enough group, they might own an assisted living facility too that you can say move into after that hundred days or something. Um, the the thing is, is the assisted living is great. Um, it can be really, really good. And nursing homes can be good, too. There's not, like, all nursing homes aren't bad, and right. they all of them have, like, their, their upsides. Like you were saying, assisted living is very social. There's probably, you know, a lot more going on, a lot more activity, just because a lot of the people who live there these days are going to be more active still, whereas in nursing homes— it's now the people who live in nursing homes tend to be much sicker, more infirm. Um, but there's still socialization where there's not necessarily if you just, you know, live alone at your house and somebody comes by a couple of times a week. So there are definitely good things to nursing homes. The problem is, is 70% of them are for profit. Some of them are owned by um, private equity firms. We shouldn't let private, private equity firms anywhere near the aged population 
ever in any country. That's just a terrible combination. And apparently, in fact, there's studies that show when private equity firms take over nursing homes, there is a measurable decline in health outcomes for the residents because their whole thing is they're they, you know, they're dedicated to ma- making, you know, corporate profits. So you cut costs and you cut services. And you just approach things differently than you should. And that's kind of like this evolution that's going on now is we, we've we been providing services to elderly people as they age as if they're customers, where instead we should be providing care. And those are two different things, even though from, you know, a few paces back they might look similar they're not. They're different. And that's kind of the push that we're going toward now. Yeah. So where we find ourselves today statistically is, uh, and I was kind of surprised about this. I had a feeling that more Americans were in these facilities than I thought. Um, I guess it's a little bit heartening to hear the numbers. Mm -hmm. Um, There are about 1.4 million Americans in residential nursing homes and then uh, another 1.7 million cycling through those skilled nurse, uh, nursing facilities, if they have like a surgery or an illness or something they're recovering from or yeah. rehabbing from, uh, which is only about 4.5% of all Americans over 65 and 10% of all Americans over 85. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be higher than that. Um, I th- you know, if you want to look at the downside, though, is one big reason why maybe the cost. Um, it depends on where you are, of course, but if you um, – are in a private room at a nursing home, and I guess was this uh, in Georgia? Yeah, at two hundred and thirty-five dollars a night in New York, that's about four hundred dollars a night and change on right. average a night. Mm-mm. Like at that point, just move them into the W Hotel, right? <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah. The only thing is they don't have nurses at the the uh, W Hotel. I know, of course, you know? I'm kidding, but, uh, but that's it, a lot true. of money, man. And you can just get bled dry at the end of your life. Well, you do. And as a matter of fact, to pay for a a place like that, a a nursing home, Medicaid says you have to have paid in, which basically says you need to have if you if you don't own your house anymore, you have to um, give the proceeds from your house. Yeah. Um, You got to liquidate. Yeah. You have to liquidate your 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 inheritance. You have to you have to pay down to usually something like I saw, like maybe seven hundred dollars a month income is the cutoff. Anything over that and you have to be contributing. Um, anything under that, then Medicaid will kick in and pay the the place directly for letting you stay there. Um, but the thing is, it's like, of, of course, the, the, the better alternative is assisted living. Me- some state Medicaid programs will pay or help pay for assisted living. But for the most part, if you're, if you're, are paying for if you're living in an assisted living facility, you might have a reverse mortgage on your house. You are probably you've liquidated all of your um, your investments. Um, you're 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 paying for it out of pocket in the United States for the good kind of uh, retirement home. Yeah, and you know there are people out there that are trying to further reform uh, what these places look like. Uh, there's a gentleman named Dr. Bill Thomas who is a uh, geriatrician who has something called the Eden Alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, he's trying to basically uh, reframe these nursing home uh, residents and caregivers as care partners. And, you know, it sounds kind of hippy-dippy, but um, he wants people to be able to still grow in life and to still flourish and to still learn. Um, 
just because you're a senior doesn't mean you just have to to sit in a room and watch Judge Judy or push checkers around a checkerboard. Uh, and, you know, the, they're, depending on where you are, they might be adopting these methodologies of the Eden Alternative uh, or um, the Greenhouse Movement, another thing he helped spawn, uh-huh. which is you're in, a, in an individualized home. It's not a big facility. you got a private room. you got a bathroom. And there's outdoor space for you to go and garden and to walk around and to, again, try and flourish in your in your last years on this planet. Right. Um, and that's a that's there's also a push for um, for aging in place at home. Yeah, sure. Uh, which can be really beneficial. But again, there, it can also be isolating depending on, you know, what kind of friends or family. Maybe if you live in a condo, it mm-hmm. would be a little more. But if you're living in the house that you spent your entire life in and all of the neighbors have moved away and you don't know anybody anymore, that can be isolating. So in that sense, assisted living or even a nursing home could be a better alternative. But a lot of people say, no, this is my house. I want to stay here at yeah. home. The problem is, is um, I've, seen, uh, I've seen it put that Medicaid has an institutional body bias, which means that like they'll pay for you to go to a institution, uh, like the definition of the word institution. They don't really pay for you to be able to stay at home. Some programs do, but a lot of them don't, even if you do want to stay at home, which is kind of heartbreaking to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, Emily's uh, grandmother, Mary, who's very popular with this stuff, you should know Army, mm-hmm. as the eldest general, she, you know, we had to move her out of her house that she was in, you know, not her whole life, but for a large portion of of her life, but it, you know, it was one of those deals where it's out in the middle of the country in Ohio. Uh, there was no family close by. There was no hospital close by, and it's just it's hard to say it's okay to stay there, you know. Yeah. Um, and it was sad when she left, but she was also like, "No, this is great. I'll move in with you guys." <laughs> <laughs> like she didn't kick and scream, you know. She was uh, she was willing and understood it was the best thing, and uh, you know, that's probably one reason why she's pushing one hundred right now. I think. For sure. Where does she live? She lives with Emily's parents. In, uh, That's fantastic. Here in Georgia now. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that that worked out for her. Um, but I was also looking at, like, the antithesis of that. Like, what happens yeah. in the United States to people who who don't have any family, yeah. who don't have any children, and who don't have any money? Like, what happens to them? And they seem to be... <sighs> They seem to be kind of left on their own. Like if they have a house, they're they're probably just going to be left in their house, and maybe Meals on Wheels will come by. Yeah. Um, the county social services might be able to help them, but this is if they reach out for help. If they need assistance, they might not get it at home because again, there's a lot of um, services that aren't paid for, and if you don't have any money, you're SOL. You could go to a, um, a nursing home, but if you don't have any ability to pay. Um, they can kick you out. Uh, they can kick you out for a bunch of different reasons. There's the most depressing thing that I've looked up in a while was nursing home evictions. Oh God! And they there are there's a, there was a loophole that was recently closed in 2016 that said um, if you if the nursing home is n- not able to um, to offer care for the person, then they can be discharged. And they use that as like a huge loophole. They'd be like, we're sorry, we can't offer you the care you need any longer. You have to leave. And, you know, if you don't have anybody to advocate for you, you're, you're, you know, who, where are you going to go? And I couldn't get a really good answer, but I, I get the impression that it's, there are 
it's not huge and rampant, but there are a lot of people who um, are still falling through the cracks of society as they age because we don't have a robust, nationalized um, plan to care for the elderly no matter what. And I thought, well, of course, the United States is super behind in that respect. But apparently, we're in in line with other countries like Canada. You'd think Canada would have like a, a place for every senior and they're all happy and taken care of and everybody gets a pet beaver or something like that. No, you're on your own kind of. Like your state might help you out a little bit. The local city might. But that's about it. Same with the UK too, which I was really surprised because both of them have nationalized medicine. Yeah, I will say that this is where um, social media has been beneficial um, as far as neighborhood and neighbors go. Um, I mean, all the time on our neighborhood pages, we see people stepping up, uh, and especially in a place like Atlanta, Atlanta where gentrification has happened. Um, you do see a lot of neighbors stepping up to help take care of um, the senior African-American community that is – um, still living in their houses, and mm-hmm. they haven't been bought out for a shamefully low price by a, a, a greedy contractor to, to flip it into a little McMansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you see it all the time. That we work with a group called Neighbor in Need that really does great things. And oh, that's great. And aside from just the the official organizations, all the time you'll see someone that lives next door to someone like that. They'll be like, "Hey, she's having a hard time paying her power bill this winter." And, you know, in, in an hour, it is funded for, for the rest of the year. Uh, the neighbors step up and, and pay for her power bill. And it's just – it's little things like that. But um, these are in communities where houses are close together and people are uh, know each other's business. Like um, Emily's grandmother out there in the middle of the country and a lot of rural uh, America, like that might not be the case. You might not have someone checking up on you. And people, you know – Bleeding hearts like you and I feel that they should be taken care of no matter what, you know? Yeah, but, I mean, isn't that something everybody can get behind? You would think so, but that's just not true. I'll I'll remind you of our episode on homelessness many years ago. Yeah, that one's tough for me to swallow. Those are the people who believed in the unworthy poor, huh? Yeah. And would have sent them to almshouses back in the day. Yeah. um, The good news is if you're looking for a home— for a family member these days, uh, Medicare.gov has a lot of resources. Oh, I'll tell you another place, too. U.S. News and World Report is really hot and heavy on um, an assisted living and nursing home ratings. Yeah, Nursing Home Compare is another website. And, you know, there are places where you can go to really dig in, see which ones you feel are a good fit. Uh, they're rated on, you know, how the people are really doing there, not just, like, how pretty it is. And if you go and visit one, they said to beware of the chandelier effect. Like, mm-hmm. in, in fact, if you walk in and you see a grand piano in the lobby, just turn around and leave. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, I mean, that's one of the ways that they get you. You want to do a little more digging than just that. And you want to talk to residents. You want to read, like, actual, like, uh, inspections and reports on those places. You want to look at stats, like how many patients had to get, were taken to the ER or were readmitted into the hospital, how many have bed sores, um, um, any uh, allegations of abuse? Apparently, abuse has doubled between 2013 and 2017. Yeah. It's still low. I think it was like 845, which is 845 too many, but it's still doubled since 2013. So you want to like really look for that kind of thing. Are they overprescribing medications like for psychosis to, to people who are um, – 
who are problematic when you don't really think they're problematic. There's a lot of stuff you want to look for that you can look for that's out there. Just do some digging because this is somebody you care about. Don't forget. Yeah, and we really want to point out that uh, it's easy to zero in on things like abuse cases and uh, unnecessary medication, but um, we really salute you if you are the lion's share of these people um, that are and nurses that are taking care of our seniors and doing a great, great job and a very, very tough job. Yeah, and one of the things actually I saw, I'm glad you said that, was that um, it's it's a really a thankless kind of job because traditionally people who work in elder care, uh, like the actual workers, are treated like garbage by management. It's just like an industry-wide problem. And that was actually one of those things from the the Eden alternative was that workers are treated with the respect that you want the workers to treat the patients with. Like everyone is treated with respect and dignity, not just ideally the patients, the workers too, because they deserve it for the work they're doing. It's amazing. Uh, You got anything else about nursing homes? I got nothing else. We can do better. Start thinking about stuff, you know. I mean, you're never too young to get a plan in place. That's all I'm saying. Great point. Um, And since I said great point, it's time for listener mail. I mean, maybe if you're like 25, you don't need to be thinking about your uh, nursing home options. Okay. But you know what I mean? Well, not necessarily. (laughs) I'm your parents and grandparents. I saw that 17% of nursing home residents were under 65. So there are some younger uh, residents in there that I think get overlooked a lot, like by us. You know what you call those people? What? The party crowd. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, man. That's going to be me, man. What, the, the party crowd at the at the nursing home? I'm going to be mixing it up like Scatman Crothers in uh, the Twilight Zone movie. I could see that. Let's go play kick the can, everyone. It's midnight. It's time to could, time to take off that gown and live. Good things happen. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. We'll read it away. Uh, I'm going to call this one uh, Goots follow-up. Okay. This is a good one about the great, great Steve Gutenberg. I'm hoping someone throws this stuff his way, by the way. He, he, needs, he needs to know. I can feel him right now listening to him. All right, this is from Dave. Hey, guys, on a recent episode, you discussed the episode of Party Down, in which the wonderful Steve Gutenberg allows the caterers to throw a party at his house. Uh, you knew this had come up before and wondered in what episode and what context. By chance, the next day, I was scrolling randomly through older episodes and selected Barefoot Running. Uh, boy, remember <laughs> that one? <laughs> that was a rough one. <laughs> when in this episode you started talking about Steve Gutenberg, I had an intensely existential experience. I was listening in the present to you talk about Steve Gutenberg in the past, having listened in the more recent past to you also from from a more recent past talk about Steve Gutenberg, unable to remember the more distant past in which you were talking about Steve Gutenberg, which I was now listening to in the present, which knowledge of the future in which you would again discuss Steve Gutenberg. Is Steve Gutenberg the center of our cosmos, the nexus around which space and time and God swirl until they become one? Mm -hmm. The answer to this question... For which our souls cry out, I can only speculate yes. Anyway, I wanted to let you guys know in which previous episode you featured Steve Gutenberg. That's great. As to the context, there was none. You you started talking about Steve Gutenberg for no discernible reason. <laughs> it sounds like me. Yeah. Uh, which is as it should be. And that is from Dave. And uh, Dave was very excited that this was getting read. And he said, to be honest, I had a little bit to drink when I wrote that. And I didn't uh, fully... Uh, remember the whole experience. So, 
Good job. Oh, well, there you go. Goots would be proud. Yeah. Uh, I think Dave's going to be part of the mixing it up crowd at the nursing home, too. Be kicking that can. Yep. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Dave. That was pretty great. Um, and if you have something great to tell us, especially if it's in reference to something we said about something we said in the past, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 